those of you who don't know, I'm Jason. I'm the one of the co-pastors here, along with Janelle. And uh, this is the part of the church service where I probably talk too much. So uh, I apologize in advance for that, but I have some things to say. And um, Jen's phrase today really struck with me. Uh, I have a lot of jumbled thoughts that maybe I haven't thought through. And in addition to that, uh, I don't know if you noticed, but there's a lot of church happening at church this morning. Um, and that's good. Uh, I'm going to do my best to not get in the way of that. For those of you who don't know, we are in the middle of a teaching series called The Art of Community. At the Oceanside Sanctuary, we are wrestling with what it means for us to be closer together as a group of people who are following Jesus together. And that's important for us at this church because this church has been around since 1875, and we have always been known for certain things, for reaching out into the community, for doing a lot in this community right here on this street corner, uh, right here in the 30s during the Great Depression, not the Great Recession, that was the mid-2000s, but during the Great Depression, the first woman pastor here started a soup kitchen in the basement, and ever since, this place has been known as a place that feeds the hungry. That's great. That's a legacy that is important to all of us who call this place home. But we haven't always been very good at connecting with each other outside of Sunday morning. And so the last time this congregation put together its priorities for our mission, one of the things we said was a priority is that we learn to have closer relationships together, relationships of care and concern and mutual aid beyond Sunday morning. And so that is a high priority for us. So we're exploring that in our teaching uh, and we've done this in a couple different ways, but this month we have been exploring Romans chapter 12. So if you have a Bible, you can turn to Romans chapter 12. We're going to pick it up in verse 3. Last week we looked at verses 1 and 2, where Paul talks about offering his body as a living sacrifice. And I pointed out to you that just like Acts chapter 2, Paul's sort of progression towards community, towards a community of love, begins with this image of fire. Uh, that there is this sense that the power of God comes to us in a way that, uh, that produces something new in us, that transforms us. Paul says it transforms our minds, and that becomes sort of our act of worship. So immediately after that, Paul's going to jump into what I think is one of the most important bits of understanding community in Scripture. It happens throughout the New Testament, but this is a particularly memorable passage. So... I have some thoughts, but before we jump into that, would you just pray with me for a moment as we approach this passage together? God, we thank you for today, for this opportunity for us to come together as a congregation to lift you up with our, uh, with our prayers, with our words, with our singing, uh, with our hands. We do all of these things, these bodily actions as a way of offering our bodies to you in worship. And we do that because we, we are committed to being changed in some way by you, to, be, to being transformed, to passing through this act of worship to become what you have created us to be. We ask that you would give us a clear vision of what that looks like and the willingness to become fully human. Pray all that in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Romans chapter 12, verses 3 through 8 says this. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. So immediately after talking about offering ourselves to God as a living sacrifice, uh, sort of like the burning bush on fire, but not being destroyed or consumed, and that being our spiritual or our reasonable act of worship, Paul immediately jumps into an exhortation that we ought to think more humbly of ourselves. That our thoughts about ourselves ought not to be too high, but that they should be soberly uh, judgmental about what's true about us. Verse 4, Paul continues, For as one body we have many members, and not all the members have the same function. So we who are many are one body in Christ, and individually we are members one of another. We have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, prophecy in proportion to faith, ministry in ministering, the teacher in teaching, the exhorter in exhortation, the giver in generosity, the leader in diligence, the compassionate in cheerfulness. Paul immediately shifts from the talk about worship and becoming transformed into this really powerful and very familiar metaphor for the church. We often talk about the church as the body of Christ. This is Paul's really memorable metaphor for who we are together. And what he's trying to say should be, you know, incredibly obvious. All he's saying is, we're like a body, right? We have arms and legs and fingers and toes and noses and ears and funny haircuts. And, you know, we, we are different. But those differences are unified together in a whole in Christ. In other words, we need each other. Elsewhere, Paul gets really specific about this in his letters to the Corinthians. He says, one body part ought not to shame the other or devalue the other. We desperately need each other. Just like a body needs every member, so we need each other. And then he goes on to talk about these gifts. And there are libraries of books that have been written about spiritual gifts. He gets into this notion that some of us have the gift of prophecy and others have the gift of teaching and others ministry and generosity and exhortation and so on. And Paul's whole point, of course, here is, I think, really important to stop and consider before we get into the details of what it means to be a prophet or a teacher or an exhorter or a giver, any of those things, I think we, we don't want to zoom past the bigger point, which is, of course, that each of us individually are valuable. Each of us individually are necessary. Each of us individually are needed. I think what we forget in this metaphor is that Paul is giving us an incredibly high concept for the full dignity of every human being in the church. Paul's notion of Christianity, his notion of church, is a community of people where every single one of us, including you, is afforded the opportunity to be fully dignified as a human being. to live into your highest possibilities. 
that every bit of you is important to who we are and what we do together, and there can be no denigrating any one person. This is the opposite of how the world operates. I hate using phrases like the world because of the way that those phrases get used in church. But I want to be clear that when Paul talks about these kinds of ideas, he's contrasting it with the way that we all live every single day in the world, which is not that every human being is fully dignified, that every person is afforded the fullest possibility of living into who they really are. Instead, in the world, we often encounter workplaces and schools and families and neighborhoods where you are not afforded dignity for who you are, but rather you are expected to live up to certain ideals or performance standards that are utterly dehumanizing and unrealistic. And by the way, your paycheck is attached to that. We live in a world of stiff competition. We live in a world where if you don't live up to the standards that somebody else establishes for you, you might go hungry. And if you do go hungry for failing to live up to those standards, you will be judged as morally deficient for it. Paul is right with Jesus here when he says that the problems we face in the world have to do with the tendency of the world to exercise a form of power that is coercive and domineering. That's what Jesus and Paul mean by the world. They mean a form of power that seeks to exclude other people on the basis of their identities, on the basis that their gifts aren't good enough, on the basis of their cultural features. It's a power game. The world we live in is a power game. The church is supposed to be an alternative to that. The church is supposed to be a world where however you show up, however little money you have, whatever ethnic group you belong to, whatever your gender identity is, you are fully affirmed and valued because you're human, made in the image of God. Okay, I guess I'm done. <laughs> The problem, of course, is that in the church, we all too often reflect that same power game. We judge and exclude each other on the basis of all of those things. And so unfortunately, we really can't get into the details on what it means to be a prophet or an exhorter or a giver or any of those other things, because I have to say something obvious, which is, of course, that we as creatures tend to be afraid of each other because of our differences. And so instead of valuing each other because of our differences, instead of seeing that we all are different and belong to a kind of unified whole under the grace, the grace of Christ, we fear those differences. We judge each other. We fear those whose culture or ethnicity or gender or sexuality or parenting methods or business practices or marriage relationships are conducted in a way that's different than ours. Yesterday, I had the privilege of seeing a Twitter spat over whether or not people who are married should sleep in the same bed together. Okay. 
Janelle and I sleep in the same bed together, by the way. But I don't know that that's good for her. I, I snore, apparently. This is a claim that has yet to be supported. But we are so deeply afraid of people who do things different than we do that we have the tendency to judge them for being different than us. You guys, there are all kinds of amazing ways to be in the world. Do you know this? And they are not all your ways of being in the world. That's not a bad thing. That's a good thing. I think Paul is trying to tease that out with this really basic metaphor of the body and the embracing of differences. Some of you have heard this story before, but years and years ago, Janelle and I are part of a church that had a relationship with a group of churches in India, and one of our friends who would come over from India to the United States to visit us often was Billy Graham. No, not that Billy Graham. It was a different Billy Graham, an Indian-born Billy Graham, and in that particular church tradition in India, when they became Christians, they would take on Christian names. And so his parents named him Billy Graham. This is not a joke, this is true. Billy Graham was a delightful young Indian man from Rameshwaram, and he would come a couple times a year to visit us he was about our age. We were in our early 20s. And one time we were hanging out with Billy Graham at a mall in Salt Lake City, Utah, because the church was in Utah. And as we were walking through the mall, Billy just reached out and grabbed my hand and began to swing it as we were walking through the mall together. And being, you know, a straight, white, cis guy raised in evangelicalism, I was very uncomfortable. But I loved Billy. And so I did not let go of his hand. Because of course, in Billy's culture, men have no qualms about expressing physical affection for each other. It's common for men who are friends or relatives to hold hands in public together, to touch each other in a way that affirms their love. And so I swallowed my homophobia. <laughs> And I held Billy's hand through the Cottonwood Mall in Salt Lake City, and it was delightful. <laughs> you guys, there are all different kinds of ways to be in the world. They're not your way of being in the world, but they are still good before we can even have a conversation about what it might look like for us to have different kinds of gifts, we have to first learn to be curious about each other's differences, not fearful of them. We have to learn from each other how it is that we are making our way in this life in some way that makes sense, in some way that does not destroy us or diminish our humanity. We are all finding different ways of doing that, and we can learn from each other how to do that. Even better, we can do it together. We are better together. We're better when our body has differences. We're better when we embrace those cultural differences. We're better when we embrace those gender differences, those sexual differences, those ethnic differences, those theological differences, we are better as a body. 
when we are diverse. This is why in our church at the Oceanside Sanctuary, one of our core values is an inclusive community. Because we are inclusive so that we can be this sort of body of Christ that reflects the beautiful, amazing mosaic of humanity that we would be poorer without. But that raises a problem, of course, because if we are an inclusive community, it means that we run the risk of including those who are harmful to others. And this is where Jen's words earlier during communion are helpful. It's hard to know how to be an inclusive community of people. When that means we might be sitting next to people who mean us harm. And as Christians, we wrestle with Jesus saying things like, uh, you have heard that it was said to love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you. There is, at the very heart of Christianity, a deep commitment and ethic to genuinely learning to love people who are different than we are. That goes hand in hand with what Paul's saying in Romans chapter 12. And yet, on December 7, 2008, brothers Jose and Rommel were walking down a street in Brooklyn, arm in arm. as is customary among brothers and friends in Ecuador, the country they had immigrated from to New York. Jose was a real estate broker. It was cold, so one brother stopped to give the other one his coat. And at that point, four men in a Ford Explorer jumped out and used a bottle and a baseball bat to attack the brothers. The men shouted anti-gay and anti-Hispanic slurs, having mistaken the behavior of the two brothers for the behavior of a couple of gay men. Jose was declared brain dead at the hospital and died five days later. It's a hard story for me because that could have been me and Billy. Salt Lake City isn't known as sort of the bastion of cultural inclusivity. Breaks my heart to imagine two brothers from Ecuador holding hands the way they would at home because of a ignorance about cultural differences and because of a deeply embedded homophobia, one of them lost his life. And here is where I think boundaries do matter. Inclusion cannot include exclusion. Tolerance can't tolerate intolerance. Freedom can't liberate oppression. Love can't love hatred. These are not contradictions, friends. These are paradoxes. It is true that in order for us to be an inclusive community, that we have to establish boundaries that exclude those who would weaponize inclusion. If this is going to be a safe place, then it has to be a place that is full of people who have at least made a commitment to be safe. 
I've been sharing this whole series quotes with you from Dietrich Bonhoeffer from a couple of his books, including Life Together, and here is one of them. He says, God did not make this person. Now, let me pause there. Bonhoeffer is, of course, talking about the other people in his community. He's talking specifically about other believers, other Christians. Bonhoeffer, of course, lived in Germany in World War II. He was German Lutheran. He was persecuted for opposing the Nazi party, and ultimately he was executed for it. He says, God did not make this person as I would have made him. He did not give him to me as a brother for me to dominate and control, but in order that I might find above him the creator. Now the other person in the freedom with which he was created becomes the occasion of joy, whereas before he was only a nuisance and an affliction. Here's what Bonhoeffer is saying. He's saying that when we're in community together, we experience differences and we have a tendency to judge those differences because we think that other human beings should be made in our image. Bonhoeffer's making a deeply theological point here. He's saying that when we judge each other for our differences, we are judging each other on our own standard. But what we know as people who worship God is that every human being is made in the image, not of me or you, but the image of God. So when I encounter difference, difference that tends to annoy me or anger me or make me afraid, the key theological move is to remember that that difference was made by God. And then I'm confronted by my sin. Yes, sin. Missing the mark. Failing to live up to what is truly good. Bonhoeffer goes on to say, God does not will that I should fashion the other person according to the image that seems good to me, that is in my own image, rather in his very freedom from This is where Paul's point about humility becomes key to our life together. Verse 3, Paul says, For by the grace given to me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought. But instead, consider yourself with sober judgment. This is why in Christianity... Repentance still matters. The boundary is not a boundary of race or ethnicity or gender or cultural differences or mistakes that we have made in the past. The boundary is whether or not you are willing to renounce your commitment to seeing the world through your own eyes instead of God's. Repentance is at the boundary of that community, whether or not you are willing to renounce your commitment to dominating and controlling and manipulating other people. The boundary is that point at which you're willing to repent of your commitment to judging and condemning and hating and excluding. If you're willing to let go of trying to run the world 
by the world's rules, then you can be included. If you're not willing to give up on hate and judgment and exclusion, then we will love you the very best that we can. But you'll never be as close as you could be if you just let go of your idolatry of yourself. That's what this is about. And what some of you need to hear is that when I use the words sin and repentance, like you're starting to like develop a tick. <laughs> There's a reason for that, a good reason for that. It's because historically the church has been very bad at taking the idea of sin and repentance and telling you that what you have to repent of is not your hatred and your ignorance and your judgment and your condemnation. No, what you have to repent of is your ethnicity, your culture, your identity, your sexuality, your femininity, your intelligence, your emotions, your identity. These are not the things you have to let go of. God made those things and they are good. What you're called to let go of is your insistence on being God. You're not. Give it up. You don't have to be. Isn't that good news? Let's sing together some more, shall we? God, we thank you so much for today, for this opportunity for us to uh, dig a little deeper into what it means for us to be community together. God, we confess that we often don't really understand the difference between repenting of genuine sin, our tendency to make ourselves into our own little gods or our tendency to judge and hate and exclude others. We don't always understand the difference between that and the discomfort and the fear we experience when we encounter difference in others. We're not always good at that. We're not always very discerning about that. And so we do fall short of this. We do judge people for all the wrong reasons. We do use power in the church to create boundaries that exclude people in all their God-ordained goodness and beauty. And even worse, we sometimes do that so we can protect our own ability to judge and condemn. But we confess that we are just bad at this. We ask that as we lean into being transformed by you, that you would just shape us. That you transform us. We trust that if we come to you as living sacrifices, that you will produce in us the good things that you've ordained. Make us more loving, more inclusive, more accepting, more empowering. Pray this in Jesus' name.
Okay, so now we get to go over a few ways you can get involved with the church. And our printer wasn't working, so we're going to use my phone here. Okay, first off, as Jason shared, we are trying to get together not just on Sunday mornings because there's a few of you here you can't get to know each other very well. So we would like to um, start some group and team leader trainings that are going to start uh, Sunday, July 31st from 4 to 7 p.m. So you'll come to church, go have lunch, come back. And uh, this will be a collaborative uh, training session to cover how we lead and we're inclusive so that then you all can maybe open your homes or go to a park and invite a few people to come together and have a small group. So uh, if you're interested, you can sign up uh, online, use a QR code that's kind of all over the place here to get signed up for that. We will have dinner. Um, I'm really excited about this next event. It's a new six-week small group that's going to be on Zoom called Forgiveness, Understanding the Journey. Isn't that so true that like as Christians, you're like, you just need to forgive them. But it's a journey, y'all. It's a journey. So this will be a six-week thing to get you set on the journey. So it's okay if it's, you think it might take you more than six weeks to forgive somebody. This is going to be uh, led by Lucy and Shauna. And these are two women that uh, you'll be blessed to be led by them. And then the other thing that we're really excited about is we have a Black Canyon Spiritual Nature Retreat. Uh, it's going to be October 6th through the 9th, and it's our first ever church-wide nature retreat where we will be camping, canoeing, and exploring forgiveness again, I guess it's a thing, uh, with a licensed therapist. Um, this isn't until October, but we'd like to know kind of who's interested, who would like to canoe and forgive. <laughs> so. Um, that's how you can get involved. I am really hoping to canoe and forgive. I, I'm, I'm planning on being there. Um, so to end us, uh, our time together, I think that I'd like to just light on a couple of things that we could use in our vocabulary. Maybe you all are really good at this already. I'm still learning. And that is when I talk to somebody that I don't really agree with or I'm a little judgy about, I say, tell me more. I stop talking and I start really listening because as they tell me more, I build empathy, I build understanding. I'm not always great at it, neither will you be. But um, this week, maybe try, tell me more if you aren't already. And then the other thing I would like you to consider as we're looking at who we are excluding in our lives is who do we need to apologize to? Who do we need to say, I'm really sorry, I was being judgy, I was excluding you, or 
to your adult kids. I excluded a group of people, and I know you watched that. Or to your spouse. I know I'm really hard on men sometimes. <laughs> Whatever it is, I think uh, this week, in light of all that I think God has done here with us, just consider how you can walk in your week with those things. We hope you have a wonderful week. Get involved. Oh, and if you want to give something to the church, you can do the QR code or there's some giving boxes in the back. Only if you've got it. All right. Take care. God bless you.